Hello and welcome to part seven of the Miyazaki Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by the Countdown crew, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today on the podcast, we are firmly out of Miyazaki's so-called Vibes era and on to his fantastical 1997 war drama, Princess Mononoke. But first, how are you guys? I'm good, Scott. NBA basketball is back, which is, you know, like Christmas for me. I'm obviously taking a short break from that to chat with you guys, but, you know, it's a, it's a nice time of year. For a sports fan yeah. like me. I have the Atlanta Hawks versus Charlotte Hornets game on right now. Maybe the only Hornets game I watched this year because I, I don't really follow the NBA just by having a team in town here because they're quite possibly the most embarrassing franchise in all four of the, the major American sports leagues. So um, it's, it's That feels really like hard. a different podcast episode, but I'd be happy yes. to revisit that at some point. Yes. They're certainly pretty far down the list, uh, but yes, so don't really care too much about them or the general, but I, I can, I know what you're feeling, Jay. It's, it's what I feel on opening day of, of the MLB season, I think is probably the comparison point there for me. And Hey, we got the world series coming up. So I'm very excited for, for that, the inverse of the opening day, of course, but um, still a lot to look forward to. Scott, how are you? What's going on in your world? I'm doing pretty well. We're deep into fall. Jay's talking about basketball season starting, so obviously that means we're in October, deep into October. And it's been a, a minute since we last recorded Porco Rosso. At the time we recorded Porco Rosso, I believe I'd already seen The Boy in the Heron, but failed to mention on the podcast that I had actually seen the film we're building up to. I realized like after recording, I was like, it didn't even come up that I've actually like seen the movie. I've seen it. Um, but now that the casting is out as well, I feel like I have to say, interesting. I'm intrigued. Let him cook. Uh, is is what I have to say about that. But I'm doing well. I'm sort of on my I'm on my wind down back to my normal, trying to get back to my normal schedule after a series of a lot of travel and New York Film Festival and some more travel and trying to settle back into a routine here in New York for the fall and winter to come, which will be nice. I enjoyed my very hectic month and a half period, but excited to settle in crank out these last few Miyazaki countdown films. And look, I feel like we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, at least I feel like I have a lot to a lot to say today, which is which is uh, always exciting for me to watch a movie and be like, I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah, Scott, you're referring to the fact that the the English dub voice cast of The Boy and the Heron was announced featuring Christian Bale, Florence Pugh, Robert Pattinson, among others, um, among yeah. Willem Dafoe, Mark Hamill. Yeah, yeah. Certainly one of the most star-studded voice casts that we've had in English dub of Miyazaki, Miyazaki film. Sure. Um, so a lot to look forward to, and uh, yeah, I imagine it's doubly interesting for you having seen the film already in, in Japanese and knowing, you know, the characters that these actors will be voicing, how that will fit. But I'm also just generally really excited. Not that you guys won't have you won't have the opportunity to do this as well, but I'm excited to have had time to reflect a little bit on the film and then also have seen it a second time because it does feel like the kind of movie where, you know, there's a lot to digest, as you'd expect. I mean, maybe, maybe we haven't gotten I mean, we've we've watched movies where there's a lot to digest with Miyazaki, maybe less so recently. I think I mean, what we're about to talk about is Princess Mononoke, which is probably the closest similarity is something like Nausicaa, 
that we've seen to date so far on yeah. the on the countdown, at least in, in my opinion. And that was really the last movie where I feel like there was a ton to like really digest and think about. Not to say that there aren't nuances in the other four movies that we've seen since then, but there really feels like a lot put into this film. And I think that, you know, that that's something that I felt a lot of in in the boy and the heron as well. So I'm not saying any more than that, but excited to work our way there. And one thing that I will say as we start to transition towards Princess Mononoke is that this is only the second time I've seen this movie or second or third time. And this watch in particular, I felt like I had a lot more to take away from it, especially having watched his other movies in close proximity in order and to think about like how those things are in inter- how are developing in his own, and at least like feel like I have some sort of insight into how those themes and ideas are developing in his mind. And as he translates those to the screen, I feel like there's a lot to, a lot to say about that. Yeah. Obviously we've talked a lot about already the environmental commentary and a lot of Miyazaki's movies to date. Sure. And certainly we're going to talk about it again today because uh, it's very prominent in this film. And why don't we just get into it? As sure. mentioned, our film today is Princess Mononoke, originally released in Japan in 1997. Princess Mononoke opens in the village of the Anishi people, where the no- noble young prince Ashitaka, voiced by Billy Crudup, is attacked by a hideous and mysterious demon that leaves him with a curse. Ashitaka is doomed to die from the distinctive scar left upon him by the demon, but he's blessed with superhuman strength during his life. That is, unless he's able to find a cure for the curse somewhere in the Western lands. Setting out on this quest, Ashitaka eventually ends up in the human city of Irontown, which has been formed by societal outcasts and is led by the domineering Lady Iboshi, voiced by Mini Driver. The people of Irontown are at war with the forest gods, who are angered by the humans' abuse of their land and resources in forming Irontown. These gods include the blind boar god, Okoto, voiced by Keith David, the wolf god, Moro, voiced by Gillian Anderson, and the spirit of the forest, who rules over them all. Also in the forest, Ashitaka meets and is spellbound by the human girl, San, voiced by Claire Danes, who was raised by the wolves and is fiercely loyal to the natural world. Caught in the middle of this burgeoning conflict, Ashitaka finds himself thrust into the role of peacemaker, and with his curse looming large, he'll have to decide whether his priorities lie in protecting himself or protecting the world around him. Jay, we'll start with you. Is Princess Mononoke another stellar entry in Miyazaki's examination of the relationship between humans and the environment, or does it get bogged down in its dense fantasy elements and lose the plot amongst the imagery? It is probably the Miyazaki film that's, you know, the telling of the story between humans and nature and whatnot. Um, you know, Scott, we were, I was saying this before we, we hopped on or maybe while we had a pause. I, I'm really tired of, you know, certain subject matters. And that's not to say that, like, this was bad. This was so good. Um, and maybe it's a testament to, like, how well it told the story, right, that like I walked away from this very much feeling like, you know, we, we never learn. Like we are we are doomed to repeat this, even though we watched it. And again, like maybe that's just a testament to how good of a story Miyazaki tells, how well he's able to capture like the human experience and the ways that, you know, sometimes we interact with nature. But it, he did it, you know, obviously you said like we've talked about a lot of this with Nausicaa. A lot of the themes are very similar. I thought this was 
you know, obviously there's been a bit of a time jump, uh, both in terms of like technology and then also, you know, Miyazaki uh, continuing to develop as a filmmaker. This was so polished, so clean, um, you know, absolutely gorgeous. There's a lot of action in this one. And, you know, there, there's a nice mix of like very detailed, you know, action that's moving at a very fast pace to when people are having their heads shot off rather than being something like very gory and graphic. It's almost like, like, I don't want to say cartoonish because it's still very serious what's happening, but it's, you know, drawn in a, like not as graphic and just simple, like, okay, we know what has happened here, move on kind of way. The score itself, you know, I, I don't want to like hit all the touch points, right? But this just, I have to call out like probably, probably my favorite so far, but I have to think about it, you know, a little bit more. I, you know, at times it was maybe even a little bit overpowering of the dialogue. It was like, wait, what are they saying? But it was really, especially I want to say the first like 30, 45 minutes, just like very gorgeous. Um, and ultimately, you know, I, I think, you know, wh whether it's because of the nature of the story, stuff that's going on in the world or both, like, you know, I walked away from that movie very exhausted, but not in a, why did I spend my time watching that kind of way, but more so a, you know, again, this has put something very important in front of us. And maybe if we were watching this, you know, in 2005, it'd be like, you know, warning, 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 like, you know, pay attention to this. And now it, you know, almost feels like, like, are we too late? Scott, your thoughts on this rewatch? It sounds like you got a lot new from this viewing. Yeah, I think I really did. And I don't, I don't know what about it. I, I can only really attribute it to the fact that I feel like we've been thinking a lot about his movies and having watched Nausicaa in such close proximity and other of his movies that are really deal, I think, with the sort of connection with nature, Totoro, even to an extent, right? Castle in the Sky, too, in some respects. I think all these things really do sort of inform and build upon what frankly, and you might have mentioned this at the outset, but just to underline that, like this is the movie that made him famous, like globally famous. This is the film that made Studio Ghibli a, a household name around the world. Um, Spirited Away, of course, takes you know the film after this is the one that was nominated and won the Academy Award for Best Animated Film, but this was the one that sort of achieved the success globally, although maybe not theatrically, but certainly in home on the home video market that rose them to prominence and i think one of the really remarkable things about this film for me especially on this watch is that i don't i don't know if it's super clear what miyazaki thinks the right answer is to some of these things and it's not as as straightforward i don't think as something like nausicaa where it's clear that we should be respecting nature and and not necessarily killing and fighting this whole idea of like ecology preservation and things like that in this movie like this film it really feels like it, it's presenting cases for both sides where nature has to bend to the need for economic development and growth and i think that's that's at the hands of the fact that lady aboshi is an antagonist but not a villain in this movie and i think that it's really important to call that out because i i mean that's not something that Miyazaki's really played with yet when he's introduced antagonists in the film. Like, obviously, Totoro and Kiki. Um, those are movies without antagonists because the films are not really about that. Porco Rosso is, has an antagonist, but the film's obviously much much less driven by conflict than it is, like you were saying, it's gotten the outset vibes. Whereas yeah. th this film, like, 
I don't think the nature spirits here. I mean, the title of this of the film is Princess Mononoke, and Mononoke is a is a negative. Like the idea of vengeful spirits is not necessarily a positive thing. And the wolf spirit, the boar spirit, the apes that you see in the film as well, although they're not necessarily like a ape god or apes like spirit that you see necessarily, but like these no like the notion of these vengeful spirits and the spirit of the forest it's not all a positive thing. And, and the things that Lady Eboshi and the people of Irontown do are not, are obviously encroaching upon the sanctity of nature. But I don't think Miyazaki is saying that all of that is bad. And so I think in this rewatch in particular, I think that that sort of reality washed over me a little bit more as I watched this as Ashitaka is really sort of placed in the middle. Like at times I think we, we, you see someone like Nausicaa is in Nasca of the Valley of the Wind, but it, it really does sort of portray but like two different sides of the equation. And that is by nature the fact that this is set in a historical period, not necessarily in like a post-apocalyptic world where things are more black and white or good or evil or things like that. Like I think there's this notion of really, I think what the film comes down to is this notion of progress versus sanctity of nature and preserving that. And I think it's totally reasonable to walk away thinking this movie is like, we just don't get it. Like we have to preserve nature. But I also think it's totally reasonable to walk away from this film saying Lady Eboshi and the lepers and sex workers that she employs, like the things that they were doing were good. Like they weren't but necessarily bad. And the film is about like, what's the right balance? Right. And I think the film isn't, I think the film does sort of assert that the balance isn't right and we have to find the right balance but it's not all of one or all of the other. And it's certainly not, let's not have some sort of industrial revolution re revolution in a way to progress society, but it's about like the spirits are too protective and maybe the people are too transgressive against, against nature. And so it's about finding those right, that right balance. And I think that there was just something really remarkable about that for me in this watch of the film. And the fact that you have someone like San, like you have Ashitaka that you have Lady Eboshi. I mean, these are probably some of the best characters that I think we've seen so far in terms of like how they're developed and and how intricately maybe their their backgrounds are are played out. Not necessarily all fully explained, but left out there to be imagined. I mean, I think there's a few theories about the backgrounds of some of these characters that I don't even know if it really matters whether we get into later or not. But I, I think it's a fascinating film. It's one that I think was sort of middle of the road for me in Miyazaki's filmography before but i think after this watch i think it really did take a step up for me and has sort of entered the conversation as uh in the top tier of of his films for me so far and i think that just sort of speaks to the depth and nuance that it's sort of portraying what i think previously had been pretty straightforward issues in miyazaki movies not that there aren't nuanced things to say about those issues but i think it's just presenting something that's a lot more complicated and i think it's taking interesting things from Kiki's delivery service about like coming of age and and yeah Nausicaa of course too and sort of pushing that all together into a film that is much more expansive much more epic and is a pretty compelling story I think probably one of the more compelling just narratives that he's presented to us so far so yeah I was I was really wowed by by this film this time around and um I just have a lot of things I feel like I'm still sort of processing and digesting yeah, I'd be interested to know what your guys' thoughts on this is, but it feels like this is the first film that he has made that we have talked about that you can't describe as a children's film like in any way, really. 
Um, I think. I mean, yeah, the opening scene alone, right? Like the the demon yeah. boar. I mean, that's like that's a sick image. And so, with introducing that, you know, with with kind of letting that go by the wayside, I think naturally comes some of what Scott is talking about the storytelling and the, and the ambiguity. Because of course, when you're making a film that children are going to watch. Um, the, the, those films tend to have more black and white morals. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're saying that some of the Miyazaki films that we have talked about thus far have had, and obviously that's not a bad thing at all. Um, but this movie does introduce the ambiguity that Scott is talking about. And, uh, you know, like you say, Lady Eboshi's not antagonist, but not a villain. At the end of the movie, both San and Lady Eboshi, who are kind of the two opposite positioned characters in the movie are yeah, still alive. They're certainly polar. Alive. They're the other yes. ends of the spectrum from each other. Right. For sure. They're they're still alive. They're still, you know, determined to um accomplish progress, whatever that may look like. Um, and it's not, you know, the traditional like you know, again, good defeats evil, hero defeats villain in the end. Um so that all of that stuff I really enjoy about the movie and I admire that a lot. I have to say on the whole, and I hate saying this because it's a cliche. Oh, you don't have to that, say it then. You just don't you don't have to. It's fine. <laughs> it's a cliche that people say about movies, and I have said it too. And sometimes I think it's it can be a it cop out. A, a cop out when you say it. But um this is a movie that I admire more than I love. Um is what I would say. And again, I admire a lot of the storytelling in it. I admire the craft. The imagery is crazy. I mean, you know, again, we're just talking about the the boar or the the demon and everything in the beginning, but then introducing all of the the boars, the the wolves, the Do you like sand sucking the, the blood out of the wound of the wolf? That's a, sure. Yeah. yeah just some, cool. some real real gory images and stuff here. But um but all that stuff, you know, it's hard not to admire the craft on display. It's hard not to admire, you know, the craft on display in every Miyazaki film. Like that just, it feels like that goes without saying. I just don't feel too much of an emotional connection to this movie. And I think part of it is, you know, we haven't talked too much about this, I guess, because I think a lot of the films thus far have been sort of easy, you know, easy watches more or less. But you know, I'm not an anime guy in any way, right? And this feels like the most anime Miyazaki film that we have reviewed thus far. Um, that's that's int really interesting that you feel that way, because I actually kind of feel like this is way less, like, fantasy than a lot of, like, the earlier stuff. Like, this is way less fantasy than Nausicaa. I think it's pretty... It's no, I mean, Nausicaa is the closest counterpoint, which is interesting, because I, I love nausicaa like i both times i mean I've this is like it. literally set during a historical period in japan in, in japan yeah i i understand that but like introducing you know the spirits and mm -hmm. um you know you have all of the animal the talking animals and all of this and people with superhuman abilities and um mm -hmm. and j just i, I don't That's know okay. it strikes me as being more freaky i guess is <laughs> is the is the adjective that comes to mind um <laughs> Then you know the the most of the films that we've talked about thus far. Well, th um, thankfully, so, flying's not viewed as a superhuman ability, so Kiki's off yes. the table on that. So not much flying in this movie, if any. Um, yeah, which is is a change, but 
Um, but anyway, so so I am a little bit at a distance from this movie emotionally. I don't find any character to be somebody that I latch on to like I would latch on to, you know, a Kiki or even Porco I talked about that I was a huge fan of in the last movie. You know, spoiler alert, but I already watched Spirited Away and, you know, the the protagonist of that film, I think, is kind of the ideal when it comes to emotionally connecting and identifying with the protagonist. Um, so I guess just surrounding this movie in that context, um, it, it highlights a little bit more for me that I think this movie is missing somebody that, I mean, you know, maybe you guys feel differently and that's perfectly valid. Again, I think the film is extremely well-crafted, but. You're telling me that you that you connect more with the spirit away than this movie. I'm happy, sir. I tip my cap to you. <laughs> I mean, again, I don't think there's a controversial take or anything, but um, but anyway, that that's what is that's the secret sauce that is missing for me a little bit in this movie. You know, there's this relationship that forms between Ashitaka and San. It's like, you know, is it romantic? Is it a friendship? It's it's kind of like again, the lines are a little bit. Scott, let me make it really clear with you. The the crystal dagger that he gives her it means that she's his fiance, so it's romantic. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, it is romantic, but anyway, in that in that case, it feels like that. That it's not very well developed, I guess. Um, you know, he's just kind of entranced by her, and you know, again, there there is a little bit of a grown worthy moment where like i don't even remember the context but it's kind of like the first time they really have an interaction with each other and something serious has happened like i think maybe he's been injured or something like that and he's just like oh you're beautiful you're so beautiful or something like that and it's just like bro that's not really the point of what's going on right now but. i got i gotta say i'm really curious I, i'm like pre- i'm like starting to get pretty convinced that the, these dubs are like doing doing it dirty a little bit because on the sub side, um, I gotta say that I think that the Japanese, because I went back and watched at the request of a coworker, I went and watched some of it. So I wish to watch some of it sub. Oh, okay. And I didn't watch the whole thing sub, so I don't have a full look into what you're talking about. But like the beginning, there's like some really important details that are not. It's not that they're not like they're not stated. But like the beginning of the film when he's leaving his village, like it makes it very clear, I think, that like the woman who gives him the, his, the crystal dagger that he then wears around his neck, like was supposed to be his wife, like his fiance to be married, his betrothed. But like they frame it as a sister in like the in the dub. Yeah, it's just like a very strange choice in the dub. And then because that's what makes it really unclear, like with the dagger, like what's going on later in the film between him and San. And I also think that at the beginning of the film, like, is it super clear to you guys that he can't return to his village ever? Was that like super clear to you? That was clear to me, but it wasn't yeah, clear yeah, to, I got that. to Phoebe. Like when we were watching. Which yeah, because like, it, it's something that is like, ex- like very, very explicitly stated multiple times and made very clear that that in order for him to find this cure for his curse, like he will never be able to return to his tribe. And that, that right. is like the plight of the tribe. Like it is their their last young prince leaving the the amishi and i think that like it's like a pretty important detail for the rest of the film and like what he's what he's choosing to do and how he's choosing to interact with people um and i think really paints like paints a lot of color onto the character that is like kind of glossed it it is stated but it's like kind of glossed over in the sub 
and certainly not something that I picked up on, I think, on my first viewing. Like, I think it's something that you know, but like not something you think very much about. Glossed over in the dub, you mean? But Sorry, yeah, in the dub, in the dub, yeah. Yeah, you. no, it, it's something that, it's funny, because like I, I feel like because I was really trying to pay attention, I picked up on it, because I think there's like one line where like the elder woman of the wife, I'm forgetting what they called her. I think it's know, actually one of the elder woman. men in the background say it. Like, well, she says, yeah. you can never return. And then one yeah. of the elder men says, you know, our yeah. last, you know, prince leaving. So yeah. there's literally only those two lines. Like you have to. Yeah. So really what we'd say is like uh, Neil Gaiman, you messed up, buddy. Because <laughs> apparently he localized it. So. Yes. No, I saw that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, anyway. So I'm, yeah, I'm curious if that translates to the back half of the film where there's this like the dialogue between the two of them is like, I'm not saying like, oh, it's super nuanced and fixes all the issues, but like is maybe like a little less clunky um, than, yeah, that's than entire, like the localization. Possible. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either, but go. sorry, I know I interrupted you, but I think that was such an oh, interesting no, that's, thing that jumped out to me. Yeah, no, that's interesting context um, because I never would have thought that. But um, but yeah, anyway, so, so some of that stuff just puts me at a distance from this movie, despite admiring it in all the ways that I've mentioned. And so, you know, I can't say that it goes down as one of my favorite Miyazaki movies, but I'm not going to say that it's, um, you know, a worse movie than most of the ones that we've talked about right now, just because, um, you know, it is, it is iconic. It is one of his most well-known films. Um, it is beloved by a lot of people. Um, I think you guys probably maybe both enjoyed it slightly more than I did, but um, it's just not the type of thing like that. Once we get into the denser fantasy stuff um, and, you know, the humans and spirits and all of this at war, it just loses me a little bit. And that's not a movie problem. That's a me problem. Um, and it always has been, but um, anyway, that's my overall take on the movie. I, I still, you know, enjoy it it's a four-star movie for me like i i think it's really good i just i do find it interesting because i i I feel like you didn't really say that about totoro that much but really the forest spirits are obviously they're different but yeah well this is the other thing i think totoro is so much more whimsical than this movie like this movie it takes itself very seriously and that Uh again is a culture change from what we've seen in the last few movies i mean yes Porco Rosso was dealing, I guess, with some more serious topics at times, but it was it was still a you know lighthearted movie. Like the movie ends with this fist fight that's very comical. Um, this movie, you know, again, it definitely harkens back to like Nausicaa in that regard too, where you know it's th- there's there are not many moments of of humor in this movie, or you know, and again, talking about moving away from like making a, stri- a children's film, like I think that's another thing to point out there that there's not sort of comic relief characters or anything thrown in you think about like you know the 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 henchman and the mother or whatever from castle in the sky or you know some of these like goofy sidekick characters and stuff that we've seen in some of these other movies none of that is happening here and um i think maybe it's a little I, bit i'm gonna easy. push back on that isn't uh oh my god i'm blanking kuroku on... kuroku yes, is a you. comic relief character yeah um well, I guess you could also say Billy Bob Thornton's character, Jigo, is like a little bit like, I don't know, oh, he's don't a little know screwy, but... Um, Maybe at the beginning, but certainly not by the middle or the end. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think like the people in Irontown, right? They're like kind of comic relief. Like Karuka, Karoku and 
what's her name? His wife. Toki, is that her name? Yeah, Toki sounds right. Yeah. yeah. And Gonzo. Yeah. yeah that, like the bodyguard, like yeah. Oboshi's bodyguard. It like, just doesn't feel. Really. It's not the same. It I'm not saying it's the same. It's not the same, Yeah. But anyway, I think it's a little bit easier for me to take when it's like, you know, it's more whimsical. It's, there's less mythology, I guess, associated with it. It's like, you know, we're in my in Totoro. It's like, oh, we're out, we're in the forest, we're dancing around, right? We're we're hopping on the cat bus, we're riding. There's not much more you need to know or understand. If Ashitaka had ridden the cat bus instead of Yakuza, yeah, exactly. Scott would have been all in. Heck yeah, um, which is crazy. That's a, that's a bad take because like Yakuza is, is, is a goaded yeah. companion character. And maybe 100%. I'm outing myself as a simpleton here, and if so, that's fine. <laughs> but I just expect the same take on Killers of the Flower Moon when we talk about it next week. <laughs> But yeah, if there we was written the cat bus, you would have been for it. I don't, I don't know. What you know, there, yeah. there are actually a few jokes in Killers of the Flower Moon, weirdly enough. But, um, but I, I take your, I take your point. Uh, it's just the combination of the the dense fantasy and the like taking itself very seriously that, like, I don't know that that distances me a little bit. I think, yeah, if I had to point to something, but no, anyway. that's fair. I, I think one of the interesting things is that, like maybe because i'm i'm more my heart is more open to the the fantasy side of things but i just like don't really get the i don't really feel like this film's like a big fantasy film is the thing for me like obviously there's fantastical elements i'm not saying that but like is there really that many more fantastical elements than like mulan like you know what i mean like is there really that many more fantastical elements than than like other movies that i think are considered pretty like tame on the fantasy side but again like that's neither here nor there but I I view it more as like this sort of like epic story that's sort of asking you the question of what's what's right here, and the answer is both, neither. Um, but yeah, no, I get look. The, I the, forest, see, the spirit of the forest. Yeah, I mean that's certainly. I can a see lot. the very grounded themes that are here, and that's you know one of the things I really like about the movie. Mm-hmm. But. Um, you know, again, I, I wish I could say more specifically, but it, it's just yeah. that it does lean into a depth of fantasy that yeah just doesn't quite do it for me. And, you know, again, the the human interaction with the animal gods and all of this stuff. And like, I know I'm supposed to be feeling something, I guess, when Akoto's dying, when Mora's dying, like, you know, but it just. I think you're, be, you're supposed to be feeling something conflicted. Right, because I think well, sure. yeah. the I film's mean, yeah, position is that like conflicted Moro, and, well, especially Akoto, is like gone far, like way too far, um, and maybe Moro too to some extent, although maybe to a lesser extent. But you know, there's still like these sacred beings that we should be honoring and and yeah. not necessarily protecting, but we should certainly be like honoring and and respecting. Respecting, yeah, yeah. Anyway, enough about my own character flaws. Um, we can let's talk, talk about bit. these character flaws. Yes, there <laughs> exactly. it is. Um, exactly. Let's briefly touch on the voice cast. We don't have to spend much time here because I don't know, you know, how much there is to say. But you know, pretty star-studded voice cast, I guess. Um, you have uh, Billy Crudup, how I mentioned, as Ashitaka, Claire Danes as Son, Minnie Driver as Lady Eboshi. We mentioned Billy Bob Thornton as Gigo, Keith David as Akono, Jillian Anderson. Lots of lots of big names here in this voice cast. What did you guys think, you know, about the the performances overall of the cast? 
the sub and the dub, you know, did you feel like they added a lot of character and personality here and um, brought these characters to life? I thought so. I mean, this is one of those things. It's, it's funny how you talk about, you know, this maybe not being that grounded for you or being very fantastical. I tend to find when I watch, you know, the same thing in Japanese versus English that the Japanese makes it feel more, you know, just fantastical or otherworldly. Maybe it's just because I don't speak the language, right? But it also feels like the way those voices are, the, the way just that like they contort their voices, right? It just sounds, everything sounds very like intense and dire. Not that like we didn't get some of that in this as well, but I felt like the, the performances were good at both, you know, giving us character and then just making it a little more grounded um, than like it might be otherwise. I... I guess I'll shout out like Mini Driver as Lady Eboshi. Like I thought, you know, it's it's a it's a hard voice to do well, right? This like I'm, you know, like when she's talking to Ashitaka and very much like, you know, I'm smarter than you, but also like that doesn't just automatically mean I'm right. I just am right. Like I don't know. There was this weird again, like the like like Scott has said, there's it's not like either of like the you know polar opposite characters are like clearly good or clearly bad. Um, and I feel like, you know, you get some of that Lady Eboshi, like, look, I do some good here. Like, you can, she's not, like, actively preaching that, but you can get it from the way she's talking about, you know, the people she's taking care of, the lepers, the former sex workers. Like, she, you know, there there just feels like there is, like, a, you know, a rational, for lack of a better, like, a rational industrialist there, right? And, like, it just comes through really well. Yeah, and I think so much a part of that is, like she is sort of taking up the cause. You could argue maybe to further her own goals, but taking up the cause of of downtrodden people, certainly in the realm of like social politics is like very progressive for taking under her wing, you know, prostitutes and people who have been cast out by society as, you know, ill and sickly. And the fact that she's using like them to advance society at the you know cost of nature i think it is something that makes her like a really fascinating character because what she's doing she has strong conviction for not because there's some like religious reason for it like i think sometimes things are portrayed or like some greedy reason although maybe there is some element of that it's not something that's like really explored in the movie but obviously she wants to like grow her town and and grow in power and and her ability to protect the people that are on her side but you know, she's arming women uh, to defend themselves who previously have been taken advantage of by men or have been forced to subject themselves to men who use them for sex and lepers who people who have no ability to defend themselves. And those are like all like really positive traits, right? Like in a different in a different a slightly different framing, you'd think that she is the protagonist of the story, right? But then, you know, what she's doing is is viewed as she's like she has these like traditionalist samurai men uh i can't remember like the others like the other lord's name who's like attacking her village or whatever but is it like asano or something like something that? like that yeah, yeah that's not, that sounds right like lord like she is sort of under attack from like maybe you might say like more traditionalist or conservative wings of the society but and like to defend herself she's reaching forward and doing this thing that is like react like some might view as reactionary which is i'm going to encroach on the sanctity of nature but like it it's complicated like it's super complicated and i think it makes her 
like maybe she has this wisdom that Ashitaka does not. And that's what gives her conviction that she's right. Uh, like Ashitaka is just this guy from a village. Like he's never really left his village before. He doesn't really know anything outside of that. That doesn't make him any less right or wrong, but she doesn't have the life experience that Iboshi has. And I mean, that's worth something. And I think that makes her like a really interesting character. And it's why Ashitaka it also is an interesting character because he is this person who's, he's not some like huge hero, right? Like obviously he's a prince. Like he's, we should view him in this light of the fact that he's held in very high esteem and regard by his tribe, by the, uh, the, uh, is it the, um, uh, um, uh, there we go. The Amishi people. But when he leaves there, you know, he's just this like kind of this earnest kid, like trying to do the right thing and find a cure. And he doesn't know what the right thing is all the time. And I think that's what makes him for me, like a really relatable character as he's this person who has like this, like a, a set of convictions and, and morals and those are like kind of having to evolve in real time in the movie and he's considering both sides of the equation like he understands that Iboshi is maybe going too far and certainly driven by Jigo who she's made this deal with but on the other hand there's San who like her sort of just staunch anti-human beliefs is like clearly not right either like in some ways I think San is less relatable than Iboshi um even though I think she's sort of like positioned more on as a protagonist just by the nature of being like the romantic interest of of Ashitaka. But I think that it's just like really there's just like so much happening in this not this like triangle of of main characters that makes things I think sort of like beautifully complicated. And when it comes to the voice cast, like I think Billy Crudup does a good job. I think mini driver for me i kind of agree with jay i think that it kind of is a standout for me claire danes is like i think she's sort of like positioned as having this bigger role in the movie than she probably does because ultimately i don't think san plays a huge huge role in the film um at least in terms of like presence in the movie delivering lines for claire danes but i do think that mini driver does a great job billy crudup is extremely extremely competent in bringing this ashitaka character to life and sort of imbuing that that character with a voice that makes it clear to you that like he's kind of like just like us like he's this person who is going through life experiencing what he's experiencing he has a crush on this girl that this like girl the forest that he meets but he's conflicted like he is conflicted he's conflicted by what they're doing he's conflicted by this other ally that he's developed in lady aboshi that what she's doing and he doesn't really know what the right thing to do is and he's just trying to figure it out as he goes and I think that's what makes it like a really him him a really compelling main character for me. Yeah, with Lady Iboshi, you know, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. I think to play devil's advocate, you could say, how much favor is she really doing for all these outcasts and lepers and everything? Obviously, she's giving them a place in her society, which is something that you could say that they haven't had done for them in the past but i mean they probably like literally yeah. were outcasts of society in terms of leprosy. Sure. They probably like weren't even members of society so that's not that's not nothing but you know they are still there still seems to be some sort of hierarchy right like she doesn't seem to see these people as equals necessarily and they're making weapons and as you say they're having to fight like you know i i don't know uh, just just playing devil's advocate i think you could see both sides of maybe she's not helping them as much as you know it may initially appear maybe she's not this benevolent sort of figure who's just you know giving but like her town is being attacked like, constantly by the other like what is, is she supposed to just like let them be killed like i guess i'm curious like what what do you mean like what would her 
helping them be? I guess, again, I, I, I still see it as sort of a hierarchy within this town. Yes, of course, there have to be people there. They have to like they're, they're just doing what they need to do in order to defend themselves, to protect themselves and have mm -hmm. this society. But um, like hierarchy in what way? Like you think the lepers are like lesser than other people? Like what what's the hierarchy that you see? Well, it's certainly like, lesser than like Lady Eboshi, you know, and even like Jigo, I think like, you know, they're they seem to I don't think that they would consider themselves to be on the same level of society as the people who are inhabiting iron town um, well i mean it Gigo's just strikes not a me that not, Gigo's like not a member of their of their like society like their yes society, yes that's though. fair but. um but like i don't know i guess i don't feel strongly about this but i think i do disagree that that eboshi is i think she like they are sort of like deferential to her as their leader kind of, like i don't think that she treats them as lesser but they are deferential to her as their leader because she's the one who is has the courage and the vision to industrialize this town and has the willpower to drive them forward. I don't, I, I sort of see it like her being elevated more as a function of like what her people think of her, less what she thinks of herself, I guess is how I would, I would phrase it. Just, just, just taking the cynical perspective on it, which is something that I, I guess I'm just trying, I, I get this. I don't disagree. But I'm I don't just curious like what, what you would point to, to, to support that, I guess is what I'm, what I'm struggling with. It's more just it's vibes. <laughs> I mean, again, it, it's just something about just the image of seeing them all like working and the clothes are so different from, you know, what Lady Eboshi is wearing and just just, you know, it, it strikes mm -hmm. me as them still coming off at sort of as people who are struggling and maybe yeah. don't quite have the respect of, you know, of, of the higher class the the monarch if you will of mm -hmm. this you know this this town um but that's probably a, a sidebar i agree i think the cast is is good i think you know mini driver you've um called out adds a lot of that ambiguity to the lady eboshi character because i think watching this in 2023 you know when we're more sort of environmentally conscious than ever like it would be really easy just to like say hey this you know this this character doesn't seem to have any respect for the environment therefore she is clearly the villain here um period end of sentence but i think you know certainly some of it's in the way the character is written but also i think in the way that um she's voiced um she never comes off as you know one-dimensional in that way and um and so i appreciate that aspect and yeah um you know even though i didn't really connect with any of the other characters on that deeper level that i wanted like i think everybody's performance is is solid in the movie um and ashitaka is you know different um in terms of protagonists that we've seen because he does just kind of find himself thrust into the middle of this this conflict and um you know we kind of we almost forget about the fact that he has this whole curse story going on right that like that's that's the setup for the movie is that he has a curse and he's trying to find the cure for it and then it just feels like oh he just kind of gets sidetracked on this you know quest along the way and obviously it does pay off in the end because he is cured of the the curse but um you know, it it does. It, I think there is something there in terms of he's trying to protect 
is he trying to protect himself, right? Is he trying, is he self-interested? Does he want to find the cure? Is that, I mean, that's the reason he set out. Is that all he's concerned about? Or, you know, does he now have some allegiance to nature, to the, the forest, to the gods? Because, you know, he, number one, he's, he's here, he's in the middle of this. And number two, because he has this relationship with, with San that he's, you know, obviously very drawn to. But I think that's like the beauty of the complexity of the film is that I think he has he feels like he has allegiance to both sides. I think he sees. Oh yeah, for sure. Like obviously he, is, he wants to. Cure. He is human. He is human, and you know he's very um, direct in pointing that out to San, who is like denying the fact that like denying her humanity, basically. Like she just wants to claim that she's a wolf, and like he at least had he at least has the clarity to see like. Hey, yes, maybe I understand where you're coming from here. Maybe I respect, you know, the forest and what these gods and everything provide for our world. But, you know, also, I'm not denying the reality here. Like, you know, she is still the human. Mm -hmm. Jay, what do you think about Ashtaki? You talked about you talked about Lady Aboshi, but we'll get in here on on this discussion of of our main character. I mean, I I think he is. Like, I mean, I don't think we've really had a bad protagonist so far. And like, I think he's, you know, I mean, he's right up there. Like, I, I, I think the third defender. Let's go. Not a bad protagonist. <laughs> um, in terms of watchability, yeah, yeah, not yeah, in yeah. terms no, I got you. of I like got you. I got you. Yeah. morals. Um, and I, I mean, I see him like, I think very similarly to you, Scott Shelton, like he's just very earnest. Like, I don't, you know, Scott Harvey, you talked about him, like feeling like he's, almost like getting sidetracked and we kind of forget about the curse thing. Like, I think that to some extent might be that soon after he gets, you know, cursed, we see the effects like, you know, his arm seizing up the superhuman strength, like a few times very quickly in a short amount of time. And then there are longer stretches later in the movie where it's not coming up as much because like, I, I found myself noticing that too, but I don't think that, you know, I think that, he's seeing all this through again with this like allegiance to both sides with the idea, not like, I think it's, it's both right. Like, I think like this is the right thing to be doing like as a, you know, outside party coming into this very hateful situation while also like he knows that, you know, what the, the cure to the curse that he's seeking like lies somewhere, you know, maybe with one of these two sides or at least has something to do with the, the natural side. Right. Because like, that's where it came from. So I don't know. I think like, I think it's rather noble, right. That you, you know, the, the first signs of like, you know, where the curse or where the cure might lie are in like nature, preserving nature, right. Like there's this, you know, beast that has been destroyed. There's this like lump of iron or metal, whatever it was, iron, yeah. uh, iron in his body, you know, the way the movie starts and the way, like, if I'm him, I'm thinking, okay, like, you know, nature's being destroyed. We have to do something about this, but rather than, you know, just take that side or again, just, you know, side with San immediately, just because he's drawn to her romantically or not. Like, you know, he, he is, as Scott has said, like just kind of showing, you know, perspective to both sides, like, and ultimately landing on the conclusion of like balance. Yeah. Right. And like that, I mean, I talked about, you know, at the beginning, like what this was exhausting because, you know, it feels like the subject matter is exhausting. And Scott, I think you're right that, you know, it it is saying like neither side is right. And Ashitaka like is that great centering force that 
you know, helps you see both of those things. Um, I mean, like, you know, just to go back to like the broader movie for a sec, like the reason it feels sad to me is I feel like we will never land on balance is the right thing. We're watching Ashitaka who like, you know, I'm like, I, you know, I wish more people were like this in this situation um, because sure. he, I mean, yeah, like I, I think he, not, not that we, again, we haven't Lupin the third, notwithstanding, I don't think we've I'm had like a bad heart. Bad-hearted no, no, no. Uh, protagonist. Well, he's here. not bad-hearted. He's just he's, sure. Well, he's certainly not by the end, but you know, yeah. it's I he's think, a rogue. Yeah, yeah. But I think that you know he, like, in terms of the responsibility he's bearing, and how he's you know showing, like, how to act in the situation. Like, I think if we look at both of those things, he's got to be up there, like, right up there, right? Like, I don't, I, I think. Not as many, like again, Nausicaa maybe is the other example where you, you th- look about someone who's like constantly seeming to be doing the right thing while also doing it in such like a high stake situation. Yeah, I just think it's really interesting to paint sort of both sides of the sort of conflict in such negative ways at times. Like, I think it's really easy to point to the stuff that Eboshi is doing as negative, like she's trying to murder the spirits of the forest. Like, things really clear, but I think it's also it's kind of easy to forget that San is like trying to murder the people of Irontown. Like she's trying to raise the town to the yeah. ground and kill the people. Uh, innocent people who are just trying to like make a life for themselves when they have been rejected by, you know, other other society. And I think that it, it's like it's like a really it's it's easy to look past because of the romantic entanglement that happens. Some of like the really negative things that that San is doing at the outset of the film and 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 be sort of drawn into the temptation to think that because Iboshi is is sort of the aggressor in a lot of respects that everything's sort of inherently bad but it really is more complicated than that and I and I, li- and I just love Ashitaka as this person who has to like parse through the good and the bad of everyone right that like there's like violence and peace within both sides of this conflict and I think the ending of the film just maybe transition the conversation a little bit like the ending of the film where the spirit of the forest is killed and and then the head is returned and this sort of almost like ecologically devastated ground that that has sort of unfurled as a result of the deforestation that was taking place around Irontown, but then also because of the murder of the forest spirit. I think it's it's interesting to see how the death of the forest spirit is able to create a harmony and a peace um, in the conflict at the end of the day through this compromise of like the death of the forest spirit, but the humans returning, returning the body um, to the spirit, so to speak. I, I think that's like a super interesting ending almost to say that there is like progress to be made through com- I mean like I think I can only interpret it as there's progress to be made through compromise and through these sacrifices you're able to ch- achieve a greater sort of progress and peace so to speak and part of me is not quite sure what to make of that but I think it's a very interesting take on war I think it's a very interesting take on conflict that like conflict may be inevitable and there have to be sacrifices really devastating sacrifices potentially like your town must be destroyed and the chief spirit of the forest must be murdered 
um, not must be is the wrong way to frame it, but like in this context where these things happen, there is a greater peace that can maybe be achieved. The ends in justify the, the means. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't know if I position it like that, but like I, I do think it's interesting. This idea that like maybe some really bad things are inevitable in this world, and it's about how we can make the most of the situation or how we can achieve compromise is what's going to make the most of the situation. And I think that's like a really interesting perspective that frankly, not a lot of, not a lot of media, I think often takes the side of because we try to paint things in such black and white terms. Like fr frankly, some things in life are black and white too. I don't mean to, to minimize that. I think certain things are not um, so nuanced. Some things are super straightforward. Some people are evil. Some people are good. But this film portraying a conflict as nuanced, I think, is something that's not always something that we have to wrestle with in everyday life. And the notion that, you know, you can maybe you can try to downscale some of some of the conflict that's happening is like, OK, war is war. Sure. But like in in real life, what's the takeaway? Like the, the balance, right? Balance is the takeaway. Compromise is the takeaway. And I think that that's not something that we talk about a lot of the time, frankly, especially in society today. So how do you guys, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but how do you think this movie ultimately then on that point adds to the conversation in the other movies, I guess, primarily Nausicaa, but certainly the relationship between humanity and the environment has come up in other, you know, movies that we've watched. Do you think that this is a sharp deviation from what Miyazaki was saying before, or are the movies working in a sort of harmony? Are they just fundamentally different in a way that you know again doesn't necessarily contradict each other but they're kind of just coexisting in the film in his filmography you know what do you, what do you guys think is the big picture here i don't think that they really contradict each other right i think uh i can't remember which of you two said this but you know the, the fact that we've stepped into I guess more like adult territory means that things are not as black and white the way they would be with children. And I feel like really, you know, all, all this has done is just kind of blurred the lines a little bit, like made things a little bit grayer. And I think about, you know, in Nausicaa where, you know, we're, we're seeing this, through, we're pretty much seeing the conflict, the, per, the perspective of Nausicaa, who is like a good human. We're seeing the damage being done to nature and we see some like, very just like straightforwardly evil people. I mean, the movie opens with like her, it's her father, right? Being killed in the first like 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like all these other, you know, humanity got greedy. They wanted this like war machine uh, and whatnot. And like, I think, you know, we're, we're being told the, the story from the perspective of like the, the, the extreme do-gooder on one side, rather the, rather than like the extreme do-gooder who's, trying to be in the middle um and so yeah i don't know i feel like it just gives more nuance like i think you you could watch this at nausicaa and you know walk away with like very similar takeaways but i think that you know rather than again paint just like the bad quote-unquote bad humans like again there i don't really think you know there, there's no one like truly evil in this movie and like i think that's something that's just like a little bit different right i mean you know, in the, in the big picture, like, I, I don't, I think it's just, you know, not there, there definitely are some people out there, I would imagine, you know, who are just like evil to the bone. This movie is, I think saying like, 
you know, is not telling a story of those people. And I think, yeah, exactly. More importantly, yeah, if we're able to, you know, view people as not evil to the bone and not view causes opposing ours as just like inherently evil or wrong, like, you know, there there's room for balance for coexistence. I think I've landed somewhere. Scott, what do you think? I, I just think that this movie is like cooking with different ingredients almost, right? Like I think to exactly what Jay is saying here, the film is really about different kinds of people. It's almost like, what if the world didn't get to a point where we destroyed it with nuclear, with like the equivalent of nuclear weapons, which is ostensibly the setup for Nazca in the Valley of the Wind. That like, you know, a thousand years before or however long it was, they the world was sort of eradicated by nuclear Holocaust. And this is sort of saying like, what, what if we didn't like, what if we rewind a thousand years and we play out a version of, of this story that doesn't, doesn't sort of escalate to that point where people are able to achieve a compromise because of someone like Ashitaka, who sort of moderates between these people to not get to a point where, these bioweapons need to be used to eradicate the world. So I just kind of feel like the, the films are in conversation with each other, but not to like, not even necessarily to enhance or contradict anything the other says, just that like, this is a different story with different people with different motivations. And because of their different motivations and the different characters who interact with each other, they're able to achieve something different. And it's not a universe, like there's no universal of what's happening in one story or the other but like given these circumstances this is the balance that these different characters struck for nausicaa the balance is like you have to saw like you have to side with nature when people are so like people position themselves so against it and for ashitaka it's you have to you have to figure out a compromise between these two sides when both sides are so diametrically opposed Right. In many ways, like Nausicaa and Ashitaka sort of serve the same purpose. They sit in the middle between these two sides. Like Nausicaa sits between the ohms and the other like surviving tribes of of the world. And Ashitaka sits between San and the spirit spirits of the forest and Lady Eboshi and the people of Irontown. And so it kind of feels like they feel similar roles. But the difference is like maybe this is like super obvious, but like you know, he, he can, Ashitaka can communicate with San and the spirits of the forest for the most part. Kind of hard to talk the ohm down. You know what I mean? What are we going to do? You know, <laughs> like these trilobites are coming for us. What are we going to do? Uh, so it's like, it, it's a, it's a, just a different, it's a different set of ingredients, I think. And I, and, I, and the film sort of ends up in conversation with each other, but it not, not too, I'm not even necessarily sure it enhances or takes away from one or the other. It just sort of feels like here's another, example of a person who's thrust into a position where moderation and and compromise is is where we have to land like the ohm can't kill these people and these people can't use the bioweapon to destroy the ohm like we just can't do these things and and that's sort of similar ultimately to how ashitaka is like you can't kill the for the spirit of the forest well you've done it now we have to do something to like repair this before it's permanently destroyed and permanently ruined and you know they work their way to a compromise Yes, the movie about coexisting can coexist, I think, uh, within Miyazaki's filmography within alongside a movie sure. like Nausicaa, even though they are, you know, about different things somewhat. 
Um, but yeah, I think I there's I a lot. There's just like so much more innocence in Nausicaa. Like mm-hmm. obviously, there's a, there's a loss of innocence at some point in the film, of course, and just like there is in this film as well. But I just think that sort of going back to something that you both were saying earlier, this film, I, I do, I I would contend that I think children could watch this movie. I think it'd be a bit scary. It wouldn't be a film that I'd want to start yeah. them on. But like, I think it's still it doesn't feel like he had children in mind at all when he made this though. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's that's fair to say. I don't think he has children in mind when he's when he's cooking up Porco Rosso either, to be fair. But Possibly, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, like I, I don't I think that there's still something here that is it is a you know achievable but i think rather than telling a simplistic story like again to some extent i think nasca is simplistic at the end of the day there's nuance in it for sure but it is it is sort of painted more black and white this is this is not because it's humanizing the the opposition right like the opposition in quotation marks there's not one side that is like this unrelatable species of uh, overgrown bio bugs against humanity which you know it's hard it's hard to really play out the two sides of that in a nuanced way beyond like what you're given right in front of you. Whereas San and, and the, and the sort of ant, not anthropomorphized, but like the spirits of the forest who have been given a literal voice you can hear are like something that you can like try to reason with, right? Like you have conversations with them. And I think that naturally lends itself to an opportunity to tell something that's a story that's more nuanced in how you achieve that compromise or, or are unable to achieve a compromise up to a certain point. Yeah. And I do think again, circling back one last time, the role of the protagonist also plays, you know, a role in how we see each one of the movies, because again, Nausicaa, you know, she's, she has this sort of purity about her and in her um, single mindedness, if you will, to, Mm -hmm. you know, protect the environment, to protect nature. Um, you could even say that about some of the other protagonists, again, about someone like, you know, Kiki, who is just trying to do her best, right? Like she has this sort of forward motion that we can identify with. Again, I think we'll get to this again in the next movie, possibly, um, in terms of somebody who just maybe, maybe that's just that they're a simpler character, but, um, that they have that, um, singular quality about them that we can connect with whereas here again you have the protagonist who is firmly in the middle and uh because of that obviously the movie turns out to be more ambiguous because that's the character that you know we're following we're tracking and so i think that's where some of the differences but you know not contradictions come into play Um, i think the characters have a lot to do with that but anyway i think we can move into wrap up on this movie now um Favorite scene or moment from Princess Mononoke, Jake? I think for me, it has to be this scene where Ashitaka is helping the two soldiers back to Irontown. Um, specifically, once they run into those tree spirits whose names I'm drawing a blank on. Um, and I'm sure Scott Shelton's going to jump in and tell me in a second, but, uh, <laughs> or maybe not, but you know the the just the the op- the opposite way like he and the soldiers are reacting to this right like you know the soldiers are kind of freaking out being like oh my god it's the spirits we have to get out of here and he's just like no like you know they're good luck and then they kind of you know they just like come out in droves and start like walking around them as they're making their way back to iron town a few of them are even like mimicking his walk like 
I don't know. It was just a, it was a very cute scene. If I remember correctly, like the score there also, like it's just one of those moments where it's just really swelling in the background. And I, I was like, all right, like, you know, this, this is the guy we're riding with this movie. I just think they're called tree spirits. I don't think it's anything fancy. I mean, I'm sure there's like a Japanese word for it, but I don't, I don't know if they're called something different in the movie. Scott. For me, it's the opening scene. I just think the fact that this, this scene opens with the absolute banger, uh, Scott dejected by my choice of scene. This, you know, when I host, I have to go last every time. And this is what happens. It's true. The opening scene sort of, I think remarkable. It's sort of a remarkable set piece. I do think that some of the latter set pieces do, do also deliver on sort of climactic action. But if you're talking about like an action set piece in the film to point to this opening scene where Ashitaka, we first meet him and he is trying to defend his village from this invasive demon boar spirit of the for like God spirit of the forest that has been overcome with rage and been poisoned by the basically the people of Irontown via this iron ball that I think Jay or, or Scott you had mentioned earlier in the conversation and I, I find it an immediately engrossing way to sort of grip me as a viewer um, sort of sets me up with a sort of very thrilling action sequence and starts to deliver the mystery so to speak like what why is this boar god this way and now our you know our protagonist is cursed he needs to go remove his curse like it's it sort of it sets the stage perfectly for the rest of the film and it's a really fine set piece to start yeah it feels like a like medieval quest type you know movie in the beginning like a like a green knight type setup or whatever where oh this thing has happened now and now he has his quest right which is to go to go out into the scary unknown world beyond and to find the cure and you know things happen along the way it doesn't quite play out that way but that's what it reminds me of and yes i was going to say this scene as well i also think just think the design of the demon is really cool and like probably my favorite sort of image in the the movie um of like you know the creatures um just at the end of the the green knight you'd argue a forest spirit also at the end of the Green Knight. yeah yeah Yeah. but uh you know the tentacles and everything and all that i yeah i thought that that was just that was a really cool way And, and yeah in drops you right into the action i appreciated it um and uh yeah i know i'm just piggybacking on what scott said but i didn't have a backup prepared so we're gonna just roll with it um all right guys let's put a score on it jay what do you give princess mononoke out of 10 i would love to revisit this one someday but for now i'm giving it an 8.0 9.5 and it's a 7.8 for me still a really good movie um yeah i know i get the eye roll there Fringe. still a really good both movie. of you I, it's not just you i mean what was well, killing me was like i knew my score was going to be so much closer to scott harvey's but we scott harvey, jay... i did not agree with a lot of the takes that oh yeah i know there. like we we were like 0.2 apart despite being yeah but that's just the jay habib scale like this is well established now in the <laughs> oh, lore man, come on oh, this man, has not no. been a thing for like wow we haven't so talked long. about this lore for a while because it's not a thing <laughs> anymore Jay yeah, Habib gives crazy. low scores now. It's a thing. Crazy. I mean, he came right out of the gate with Phantom Menace wasn't that great. And then what? You gave it like a seven or something? 5.1 or something. Come <laughs> on now. <laughs> I have the receipts. Why are we doing this? Yeah, I've heard it both I ways. Didn't start anyway. This, uh, <laughs> record reflect, I didn't start this. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I think we can conclude this episode on that note. Um, Jay and I pretty much the same opinion on this movie. I think that's the main takeaway here. Um, sure. All right. That should do it for this. The same episode bad of... opinion about this movie. And no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that should do it for this episode of the Miyazaki countdown. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Um, even if you can't support us over there, however, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And check out Some Like It's Got right here in this podcast feed. New movie reviews every week. We're getting into fall season, award season. Big Oscar movies are coming out. So um, check out what we have over on Some Like It's Got as well. Um, and, of course, we hope we'll be back for the next episode of the Countdown series on which we will be reviewing Miyazaki's most iconic film, the 2001 Academy Award-winning adventure, Spirited Away. But until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.